Welcome back to another edition of listener-supported KPBS Cinema Junkie Podcast. I'm Beth Accomando. Just a couple of weeks ago, I woke up to find Shakespeare and Julius Caesar trending on Twitter. What, I asked myself, could possibly make an ancient Roman leader and a playwright who's been dead for centuries trend in 2017? And the reason made me realize that people need to brush up on their Shakespeare. Brush up your Shakespeare. Start quoting him now. Brush up your Shakespeare and no women you will wow. The answer, it turns out, involves a production of Julius Caesar by the New York Public Theater in Central Park. It stirred controversy for having its Julius Caesar look like President Trump and be assassinated on stage. Caesar's assassination on stage is a crucial moment in the play, and some took offense at the image of a Trump-like character being killed. Other productions over the decades at various theaters have had a Julius Caesar that looks like Ronald Reagan, George W. Bush, Bill Clinton, and Barack Obama. But this production prompted enough controversy to make the corporate sponsors of Delta Airlines and Bank of America pull all their financial support from the theater. So that made the bard trend. And that also made my idea of a podcast on Shakespeare seem all the more appropriate. Of course, my real reason for wanting to talk Shakespeare is that the Old Globe Theater is launching a second summer Shakespeare on film series. And I wanted another chance to discuss Shakespeare on film with the Globe's artistic director, Barry Edelstein. Edelstein is not only a scholar of Shakespeare, but he's also an acclaimed theater director and someone who appreciates Shakespeare on film. This summer, he'll also be directing Hamlet on stage. I speak with Edelstein about the four films he's chosen for this summer's film series. Julie Taymor's A Midsummer Night's Dream, Peter Brooks' King Lear, Al Pacino's documentary Looking for Richard, and Baz Luhrmann's Romeo and Juliet. If you're not in San Diego or unable to attend any of these films when they screen, the good news is you can find them streaming or on DVD and Blu-ray. But before we get to the films, I wanted to talk to Edelstein about the Julius Caesar controversy. Here's a clip from the film version from 1953, with Marlon Brando delivering Mark Antony's famous speech in reaction to Caesar's assassination. People condemning the New York Public Theater production as advocating assassination don't seem to be aware of how that scene fit into the context of the play. Woe to the hand that shed this costly blood. Over thy wounds now do I prophesy, which like dumb mouths do ope their ruby lips to beg the voice and utterance of my tongue. A curse shall light upon the limbs of men. Domestic fury and fierce civil strife shall cumber all the parts of Italy. Blood and destruction shall be so in use and dreadful objects so familiar that mothers shall but smile when they behold their infants quartered with the hands of war. All pity choked with custom of fell deed. And Caesar's spirit, ranging for revenge with Ate by his side, come hot from hell, shall in these confines with a monarch's voice cry, Hamlet! And let slip the dogs of war. That this foul deed shall smell above the earth with carrion men groaning for burial. Barry, the O Globe is doing another season of Shakespeare films to complement the summer Shakespeare plays. And before we start talking about the films that you have chosen, I just want to bring up a recent controversy about a Julius Caesar 
theatrical production that took place in New York, the public theater, the free Shakespeare in the park. And then what I wanted to ask you about is can you remind people of what Julius Caesar, the play itself, is about? Because it does deal with some very complex ideas about politics and politicians. Sure. Well, two things before I answer the question about Shakespeare. One is that the public theater is my alma mater. It was uh, the formative institution in my life as a theater professional, and I spent five years of my life producing Shakespeare in the Park, where this controversy has taken place. And uh, my friends and colleagues who are on the staff there have been physically threatened by um, certain people who've objected to this production. And so it's difficult for me to talk about this objectively because the safety and well-being of my friends and an institution that I revere is in question. That's number one. Number two, I also run a great American Shakespeare theater. And what we've seen is that theaters with the name Shakespeare in their names have also received threats, even though they are completely unrelated to uh, this production. The Globe has not, thank God. But as a guy who runs a Shakespeare theater devoted to the idea that these plays continue to matter and that artists have the right to freely express themselves, I fully and completely support the public theater's right to interpret Shakespeare's play as they wish. I also saw the production and found it completely thrilling, exciting, in many ways upsetting and horrifying and moving and just overwhelmingly powerful. And I came away from that theater uh, provoked to some deep thought about politics and thrilled to see an American theater institution using this 400-year-old play to grapple with contemporary politics. So I'm a great supporter of their effort, even though I regret the tremendous controversy that it's caused, and in particular, a backlash that has involved threats of violence. Now I'll turn to the question <laughs> of Shakespeare. I think that to suggest that William Shakespeare's play Julius Caesar advocates for political violence is to willfully misread the play. The play puts this assassination in the middle of five acts. There are two and a half acts of play after this assassination takes place in which the consequences of this assassination are unraveled. And what happens is, plain and simple, it just leads to more and more violence and more and more chaos. And Shakespeare takes pains to chart it out. Innocent people who happen to share the name of the conspirators who killed Caesar are wantonly murdered on the street. Famous scene in which a, a poet named Cinna is murdered by a mob because one of the guys who stabbed Caesar was also named Cinna. Then Mark Antony takes over the country in the wake of Caesar's assassination and starts to round up political enemies and one by one kill them. So the clear clear, to me, irrefutable position of the play is that this act of political violence leads to a cascade of chaos and more and more violence. Oscar Eustace's production in the park made that clear. From the moment the assassination takes place, a violent, horrible crest of, of political thuggery takes over. So uh, this is a play that is saying, if you support, in, in Oscar's adaptation anyway, or, or production, I should say, if you support democracy, then you must use democratic means to protect it. And you cannot resist anti-democratic forces through anti-democratic means. That is the absolute clear takeaway 
from that production and from Shakespeare's play. And to suggest otherwise is, as I said, a willful misreading. Well, it also seems you have to consider that when Shakespeare was writing these plays, he couldn't really write a play about either dethroning someone who's in power or taking someone out who's in power because these were plays that were performed for the court, which would not want to see stories about usurping or assassination take place. There were examples. I mean, we're doing Richard II on our stage right now, and it's one of the famous examples of uh, a time when Shakespeare's plays were uh, used to make political points in Shakespeare's own period. There was a rebellion taking place against Queen Elizabeth's rule, and the forces of rebellion actually staged a production of Richard II, which is a play about overthrowing a king. And uh, allegedly, apocryphally perhaps, but allegedly, Queen Elizabeth heard about this and said, well, I am Richard II, know ye not that? So she understood that plays can be bent to make a partisan political argument. And that certainly has happened. There have been times in American history, during the American Revolution, uh, Julius Caesar was very frequently staged, in which the assassin Brutus, who takes out the king, as it were, became a hero. However, that required cutting the second half of the play. Right? And that's what they did. They would just take the text and wrench it around and change it in order to torque Shakespeare into saying something that, in fact, he's not saying. Once again, that's not happening in Central Park. Oscar's being very loyal to Shakespeare's play. But yes, Shakespeare trades in metaphor. And his way of talking about contemporary politics in the England uh, of, of the late 1590s and early 1600s was to talk about the distant past. And it provided a buffer that could allow him to talk about what was going on in his world without seeming to directly talk about it. And all this really just goes to show that Shakespeare's plays are still resonating for contemporary audiences and that the ideas and themes he deals with still have a power to move and affect people. What's been amazing to me is to see a production of a Shakespeare play in the epicenter of the national debate for a period of time. Um, I suppose I have to look at that as a positive, as somebody who loves Shakespeare and believes that Shakespeare actually has something important to say to us right now. I'm just very sorry that it has happened in this kind of context, and, um, and I'm sorry that uh, motives have been Im imputed to artists who have actually not been trying to do the things that they're accused of doing. Well, let's move on to some of Shakespeare's lighter, or one of Shakespeare's lighter plays, which is A Midsummer's Night Dream. And this is the film that you are going to be kicking off this summer's Shakespeare film series, which I have to say, I am thrilled to see that you're bringing films back. I have not had a chance to see this one. It's Julie Taymor's production. I have had the privilege of seeing her two other film versions of Shakespeare, Titus, and um, also The Tempest, where she had Helen Mirren as a gender-bending Prospero. So what was it about her production of Midsummer's Night Dream that made you want to show this particular version? Well, let me go back just to talk about why we're doing this. So as a great Shakespeare theater, we are looking at Shakespeare in a hundred different ways. We have a program that takes Shakespeare out to economically and culturally diverse neighborhoods around San Diego that don't necessarily have access to Shakespeare's work. We have our splendid main stage work. We have a program where we're training the Shakespearean actors of tomorrow. And we do uh, all sorts of things. I give lectures and we have panel discussions and behind the scenes tours. We're really trying to put Shakespeare um, 
in the middle of a kind of a turntable and just constantly turn them around and look at him from as many different angles as we can. And so bringing great Shakespeare films to the Globe and offering them to San Diego for free in the summertime is a part of that. We, we're trying to take as kaleidoscopic a look at Shakespeare and what he can mean and how great artists have interpreted him as possible. So once again, we're very happy to do that. And I want to stress again that these screenings are for free. Um, so, you know, come on out and have a great time. Julie Tamor's Midsummer Night's Dream, uh, I saw. I went to New York to a wonderful theater called Theater for a New Audience in Brooklyn, where she did this production to open a brand new theater that they built. Uh, there's a sort of um, tradition in the Shakespeare world of opening new Shakespeare theaters with productions of Midsummer Night's Dream. So she did this splendid, absolutely breathtaking production of Midsummer Night's Dream that is exquisitely faithful to Shakespeare's text and wildly imaginative. Julie Taymor is the genius behind The Lion King, you know, one of the great imaginations in the contemporary theater. And a film company came along and said, let's film it. So it's not a studio production of a Shakespeare play. It's basically a recording of this spectacular, um, urgent, funny, vivid theater production and very, very unique and, and an opportunity for people who didn't have have the chance, like I did, to sit in a 200-seat theater in Brooklyn and watch this amazing production, now they can. My gentle puck, come hither, fetch me the flower. The juice of it on sleeping eyelids lay will make all man or woman madly dote upon the next live creature that it seems. <laughs> I did get to see some trailers for it, and like Titus and Tempest, it is visually dazzling, and the imagery in it is amazing. And it seems very fitting for Midsummer's Night Dream. It is. I mean, Julie Taymor's imagination is kind of boundless in, in its extraordinary creativity. It is very, very thrilling to look at uh, physically, visually. There's puppetry in it. There's extraordinary digital projection work that takes you into this fairyland in the most remarkable way. There are a lot of children running around. There's a big scene involving a pillow fight among all these children. It's just um, quite remarkable. And some extraordinary performances. Uh, an old friend of mine named Max Casella plays Bottom, and he's just hilarious and wonderful. So it's this great hybrid of theater and film. It's a great hybrid of Shakespeare and of a visionary theatrical imagination. Really, really special. Well, I understand the mechanics are like New York construction workers. Yes, which is just absolutely hysterical. Yeah, Max Casella is a sort of a compact Italian guy uh, that you would see I don't know, selling ice cream out of a cart on the streets of New York, you know, and he's um, he's spectacularly funny, and 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 they they speak the Shakespeare language in these uh, in this range of New York accents, which is its own very very funny thing to listen to. And one of the other kind of innovations she has is uh, Puck is a kind of diminutive woman. Well, an androgynous sort of spirit. I, I mean, played by a woman, yes, but played in this um, strangely indeterminate gender world that's um, quite, yeah, quite remarkable. And um, as I recall, the opening image uh, is, is, is this bed floating up into the sky and introducing this idea that the whole thing is a dream. And, uh, you know, it's just a series of remarkable moments like that. Midsummer's Night Dream is going to be playing on June 26th at the Outdoor Stage, which is going to be a perfect setting for it. And next up in the program is a much darker, starker 
production, which is Peter Brook's King Lear. Uh, there are a number of King Lear uh, film adaptations, including Akira Kurosawa's samurai version, Ron. What was it about Brooks's version that you felt you wanted to share? There are a handful of great films of King Lear, but not too many great films of King Lear in English. Ron is in Japanese, and it's a radical adaptation of King Lear. There's a Russian film of King Lear by the great uh, Soviet-era director Kuzintsev, who also has a Hamlet. But English-language King Lear films are actually kind of uh, fewer. And this is the great one, uh, primarily because it's got Paul Schofield playing King Lear. You do me wrong to take me out of the grave. Thou art a soul in bliss, but I am bound upon a wheel of fire that mine own tears do scald like molten lead. Sir, do you know me? You're a spirit, I know. When did you die? Paul Schofield, arguably the greatest Shakespearean of the 20th century. He is stunning in this production, but then, you know, uh, Irene Worth plays Goneril. I mean, it's just this extraordinarily high-level cast. And directed by Peter Brook, who is one of the great stage directors and filmmakers of the 20th century as well. And they filmed it in, I don't know, uh, Greenland or Iceland or somewhere. I should look that up. But this wildly stark glacial looking place in black and white. In There's a lot of stone and rough hewn wood and big fur gowns. And uh, it just captures the ancient medieval world of King Lear better than not only other films have, in my view, but also than most theater productions have. Uh, it's short. It's cut. There, uh, the, he uses all these cinematic techniques to condense the story of the play. Uh, there's some narration. There's some title cards that tell you things that happened. So it's actually a much shorter and more roller coasterish ride than watching King Lear in the theater, and just immensely powerful. Um, and I, I, I love every once in a while I'll just get on YouTube because it's a hard film to actually find and you know watch a little scene of Schofield doing one speech or another, and every single time it blows me away. So I'm actually looking forward just to having the chance to see it on a film screen. I've only ever had a chance once before to see it. I've watched it on DVD on a TV, but to actually see it screened cinematically is a really rare opportunity. There are some reviewers, like Roger Ebert, complained that uh, Peter Brook put himself first and Shakespeare second, and that he didn't feel that this play had any of kind of, uh, it, it tended to ignore the goodness of Shakespeare's play in favor of kind of a more nihilistic approach. Talk a little bit about Peter Brook's interpretation of King Lear and, and kind of the vision he had of, of putting it on the screen. So there was a Polish literary critic in the 60s named Jan Kott, and he wrote a famous book called Shakespeare, Our Contemporary, written from the point of view of a liberal thinker living behind the Iron Curtain. And he saw in Shakespeare's plays, and in particular in King Lear, this metaphor for political life under the repressive Soviet regime. And therefore, the king is represented as this crazy autocrat who's violent, who is decadent, who is removed from the actual life of the people who are struggling and poor. And Cott wrote this whole theory that informed very strongly 
Brooks' uh, first stage production of the play and then this film of the play. So to the extent that Brooke is doing a very strong interpretive take on the play, Ebert is right, that's true. He's looking for the bleakest underbelly of the play. However, to the extent that the play itself really doesn't offer a lot of redemption, uh, it's hard to see how that's in any way an inaccurate or illegitimate interpretation, you know? It is Shakespeare at his absolute most, absolutely most nihilistic and, um, and dark. The ending of King Lear is absolutely shattering and more shattering than anything else in the canon. And Brooke seems to have put his finger on it and liberated that immense, that extraordinary power in a, in a way that I don't think anybody else has come close to. Well, I think that goes to what I love about Shakespeare so much, which is that different people can interpret it in different ways at different times in history and mine it for different things, and it still holds up. That's what's glorious and wondrous about these plays. Um, You know, I've been working deeply in Shakespeare for the better part of 30 years of my professional life, and plays that I thought were about one thing when I was in my late 20s. When I return to now, I find that they're about something completely else. Plays that seemed anodyne uh, in 2016 are explosive in 2017 because the world changes and Shakespeare seems to keep up. And Shakespeare seems also to anticipate, which is the most extraordinary thing of all, is that every time you think, oh, well, the world has outstripped even Shakespeare's imagination, you open up one of the plays and you say, no, he somehow miraculously uh, appears to have digested all this way before we even knew that we got there. So that's what's great about it. And the second point, I think, and this is the crucial thing, I'm about to direct Hamlet. And so a lot of people are asking me, well, what are you going to do with Hamlet? The the simplest way to answer it, because you can answer it in 30 seconds or you can answer it in three hours, right? What are you going to do with Hamlet? Simplest way to answer it is, I'm going to get the most talented people I possibly can into a room together, and we're going to respond to the play as we feel right now. You can't make a definitive Hamlet. You can't make a definitive King Lear. You can't make a definitive Midsummer Night's Dream. These plays are too big, too capacious. They have too much in them. So all an individual artist can do is respond from their own self in this moment. And then two years from now, another company is going to get together, and they're going to respond in a different way. And a year after that, another company is going to get together, and they're going to respond in a different way. You know, I've seen Hamlet. This will be my my own production would be my 23rd Hamlet that I will have actually sat through. You know, I know how it's going to end. Why do I keep going back? Because I want to see what a different set of artists at a different time in a different context are going to find in these remarkably rich and deep plays. I also wanted to ask about your choice of King Lear, not necessarily just Peter Brooks's, but the fact that you chose King Lear as one of the films this summer. I believe the first play, the first Shakespeare play you directed here was Winter's Tale. That's right. And I'm wondering if Winter's Tale is kind of the flip side to King Lear on a certain level, where Winter's Tale, you have a king who behaves badly and thinks his wife has died, and at the end, it's kind of like the, oh, she breathes, but it's, oh, she's warm, and he kind of gets to have her back. And in King Lear, it's kind of, he behaves badly. He doesn't believe, you know, the person who loves him but he doesn't get to have her back. 
Well, Shakespeare wrote The Winter's Tale six years after he wrote King Lear. And, uh, you know, if, if one way to look at his canon is it starts happy, it gets extremely dark, and then it finds a kind of forward path. You know, that's extremely reductive, needless to say. But there is a clear sense of Shakespeare descending in the middle of his writing life into this exceedingly dark place. And then at the very end of his writing life with his last four plays that, that we variously call the romances or the tragic comedies, these late works in his career, he finds a kind of possibility of redemption, a kind of sense of religious faith that's renewed, and the possibility of second chances, which in his middle period he really couldn't seem to find. Um, so I suppose that's true. But as for why I chose King Lear, you know, there's a list of maybe 25 truly great Shakespeare films. And we seem to have the capacity at the Globe to screen four of them every summer. So I'm just cranking through my list, you know. And uh, we've got a couple of comedies and a couple of tragedies. And I thought, okay, this summer we'll, we'll do King Lear. There wasn't, uh, you know, I'd love to tell you that there's some great unified field theory behind it. But in fact, it's a list that I keep in my office and I'm checking them off as we go through the summers. All right, and King Lear is going to be screening on July 17th, and that will be indoors at the Globe uh, to keep you warmer since it's a chilly play. Now, next up is one of my all-time favorite Shakespeare films. I believe firmly that this should be shown in every high school English class. This is Al Pacino's documentary, Looking for Richard. I did Looking for Richard because I wanted to do Richard. But I wanted to find a way to do it. How could I pull it off? And I had the idea of, what about an actor with my problems? Of how do you communicate Shakespeare to an American audience? And how do you do Shakespeare yourself, being an American yeah. actor? And I just crisscrossed everything. Well. And that's what I worked on. And it took me four years. Deformed. Deformed. But I kept, I kept alive by it. It was, it was exciting. It was such an exciting time. I, I, I just only, I only can hope it happens to everybody. I hope it can happen to me again. It hasn't. But it would be great if it would. But you actually wake up and you're excited because you're, you're looking for something to say. Because you've got something to say. Who the hell has anything to say? I mean, you know, you look <laughs> so at the news instead of saying anything. His enthusiasm for Shakespeare is boundless and it's infectious. This is, I think, the first documentary you're showing in the series. So what is it about this that you felt you wanted to show? Well, I agree with you that Looking for Richard is uh, one of the great Shakespeare movies and a tremendous way to introduce people to Shakespeare who haven't had any contact with it before. Um, I love this movie because a few years ago I had the chance to work with Al Pacino. He played Shylock in a production of The Merchant of Venice at Shakespeare in the Park in New York, which then uh, transferred to Broadway. He was nominated for a Tony Award for it. Just an amazing time. And I worked really closely with him on the text of the play, got to know him pretty well, and was impressed by the questing, hungry nature of his mind. You know, a guy who has achieved so much and is in his 70s but still approaches the work with the appetite and curiosity and openness of a, of a young artist. Um, and that's all over this movie. He's, he's getting ready to play Richard III, or he's thinking about Richard III, and he just 
travels around the world like a magpie. And he's got this sidekick who's this friend of his, this kind of crusty old Jewish guy. You are making this entire documentary in order to show that actors truly are the possession, the, the possessors of a, of a tradition, the proud inheritors of the understanding of Shakespeare, for Christ's sake. And then you turn around and say, I'm gonna, I'm gonna go get a scholar to explain it to you. No, but the point is this, Frederick. Oh. Yeah. A person has an opinion. It's only an opinion. Right. It's, only it's, an opinion. it's never a question of someone being right or right. wrong. There's no right or wrong. It's an opinion. And there's a scholar has a right to an opinion as any of us. Wouldn't but you why that? does he get to speak directly to the camera? <laughs> and they make this weird double act. These two, this sort of Laurel and Hardy pair. One is a giant movie star and one is this sort of crotchety old guy. And uh, they travel around the world. They go to Shakespeare's house in Stratford-on-Avon and weirdly the fire alarm goes off so suddenly the fire department is coming into Shakespeare's house. Um, there's also a scene in it in which he interviews an Oxford Shakespearean, one of the great academic Shakespearean experts, who happened to be my teacher when I was at Oxford. So it's fun to see him, a guy named Emerus Jones, now dead, sadly, uh, who gets one of the big laugh lines in the, in the movie. And, and it's, this, um, it's this brilliant, wonderful actor with an insatiably curious mind tracking down Richard III and this Shakespeare play and trying to figure out how to make it work. And you see him do scenes from it, fully realized in, in medieval costume. Then you see him in the rehearsal room, you see him working with other actors, Kevin Spacey's in it, Winona Ryder's in it, Alec Baldwin's in it, all kinds of people. Um, and it's funny and it's fun and, and uh, mostly what it is is kind of cockamamie. It's just this wild adventure. You know, Al Pacino going on this crazy Shakespeare adventure and he's a fun travel companion. Well, and he also seems to be trying to prove the point that Shakespeare still has meaning today. I remember there's a scene where he just goes out on the street and says, like, everybody knows Shakespeare. They may not know they know it, but they know it. And he just goes to random people and just says, you know, reads a line or asks them if they know something. And he just seems, like, so passionate about trying to prove this point. And he also points out, you know, like, people complain that they don't understand Shakespeare, and he gets... I forgot which actor it was talked about it, but he said it's it's like listening to rap music. It's like it's a different rhythm, and you just have to learn to get used to it. You know, he comes from a generation of actors uh, when the public theater in New York was just growing up, and Joe Papp, mm -hmm. the great impresario, was building the public theater and Shakespeare in the Park on the premise that Shakespeare belongs to everybody. Um, and it's a, it's a legacy that we at the Globe really embrace because we believe that Shakespeare belongs to everybody. And you need to approach Shakespeare as if he's writing the plays today. And then you find that there's something in it that's immediately connected to the real world in which we live it. So I love that he takes that view all the way to this extraordinary film because after you're done watching it, you have this amazing instinct to just go run and open up a volume of Shakespeare and, 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 and look at it and hear it listen to it, feel it, touch it. So um, he's done the, the, the world of Shakespeare a tremendous service by making this movie. I can't recommend this film enough. So it's August 7th, and this one is also inside the globe. And if you make the trip to see any of these, please see this one. And the last film in your series is another wildly inventive one to kind of match with Julie Taymor's, and this is Baz Luhrmann's Romeo and Juliet. So there are a number of other interpretations of this on film, famously Franco Zeffirelli. Why was this the one that you wanted to show? 
Well, um, maybe it was last summer or the summer before when we did this film series, we closed out with West Side Story, taking the view that Shakespeare is also a legitimate source of inspiration when adapted into some other kind of form. And so I thought it was important to do that, that, uh, that, that we inject into this film series a production of Shakespeare that's aggressively contemporary. Um, you know, we have that discussion here at The Globe a lot where we're asked, are you doing a traditional version or are you doing some kind of interpreted version, some kind of contemporary version? And I think that we need to mix it up. And so I wanted there to be at least one film in the series that really puts Shakespeare very, very strongly in a contemporary worldview. And this is one of the best at that. Um, it's, it's set in some sort of, you know, undefined, gigantic, transnational metropolis that like, looks a lot like Mexico City or something, a big, sprawling, gigantic, uh, uh, you know, city bigger than anything in the United States. And there are these two rich families, and they're having this big fight. Uh, there's a big joke involving a Federal Express type of delivery service that, you know, solves one of the big conundrums. I'm going to do a spoiler. There's a the, the, the message that there's a secret plan to pretend that Juliet is dead is supposed to reach Romeo by a friar who is to deliver a letter. And in Shakespeare's play, the friar gets all the way to the town where Romeo is only to find that there's been an outbreak of the plague and the gates have been sealed shut so he can't get in. So the message never reaches Romeo. When Romeo goes to Juliet's tomb, he fails to understand that she's only fake dead and not real dead. Then he kills himself and she wakes up and he's dead and it's too late. So in this movie, the reason the message does not reach Romeo is because the FedEx truck has a flat tire in the middle of the desert, right? And it's really fun because the language in the play is deliver this, less deliver this letter to Romeo post-haste dispatch. Post-haste dispatch is Shakespearean for very quickly, right? So the name of the FedEx company on the side of the truck is post-haste dispatch, right? And it's just so clever and such a wonderful, funny, witty, silly way of taking this 400-year-old idea of a letter that doesn't get to somebody and translating it into terms that we immediately understand because we've all you know, had the experience of waiting for something from FedEx and it not showing up on time. Um, so that's what I love about it is it's got a real wry twinkle in its eye and it's got a real sense of fun but manages to capture the vitality and the vibrancy of it and also I think has a very very moving version of the tomb scene at the end because it involves these two exceedingly young beautiful it's Claire Danes and Leonardo DiCaprio and they're just gorgeous and young and and the the, the horrible sense of loss when they're lying there dead at the end is palpable and, and moving so you get a, a, a huge wide range of experiences through this thing and um, I just think it's a hoot. It did receive criticism for cutting the text and for uh, some people felt it didn't revere Shakespeare's words enough but the thing that I appreciate about it is that he Baz Luhrmann really seems to be trying and not in a heavy-handed way but trying to make that text understandable and I just remember the opening with the prologue. Two households both alike in dignity, in fair Verona, where we lay our scene. From ancient grudge break to new mutiny, where civil blood makes civil hands unclean. From forth the fatal loins of these two foes, a pair of star-crossed lovers take their life, whose misadventured piteous overthrows doth with their death bury their parents' strife. The fearful passage of their death-marked love and the continuance of their parents' rage, which but their children's end, 
naught could remove is now the two hours traffic of our stage. It's delivered by a news anchor, and then you see headlines, and then you see it as text. And so it's like it's giving you multiple times to understand what it is. And he does that like throughout in trying to like bring this text to life. Reverence is deadly. I mean, reverence is a deadly force in when it comes to art and vitality, right? You know, you go to a museum and there's some glorious object and it's behind a, it's in a big plexiglass box and you stand and look at it, but you can't touch it, you can't feel it, you can't smell it. You know, um, Shakespeare shouldn't be that way. We, we shouldn't, we shouldn't put Shakespeare in a glass vitrine and remove it from us. We should be able to, we should be able to touch it and recognize that it's, um, it's messy and it's dirty and it's sweaty and it's bloody and it, and it, and it has human fallibility in it, you know? So um, I don't have a lot of patience with people criticizing Baz Luhrmann because he dared to cut a few lines here or there, do something, uh, do something, you know, that's somehow not pure with it. Because what he does is he captures the real vibrancy of this play, the, the, the real sexuality, the real muscularity, the real thrill, the real daredevilry of uh, these, these two young teenagers who, 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 who would who would have the temerity and the and the guts to defy the conventions of their society. So to me, it's, it's a triumph. It's a triumphant uh, exploration of Romeo and Juliet. Is it a reverent one? No, but uh, it doesn't, that doesn't interest me, you know? I'd much rather see somebody mess around with it and have fun with it because, again, we know that next year somebody's going to do a different version of it. And if we look at the Rome, this Baz Luhrmann, Romeo and Juliet, and we say, ah, it's too aggressive for my taste, you can just go get the Zeffirelli, which is full of flowing locks and medieval clothes and, you know, and sentimentality and soft focus photography and, you know, and you can get that Romeo and Juliet. So to me, to return to an, uh, an image that I used before, the more kaleidoscopic a view we take of Shakespeare, the more Shakespeare continues to live. And that's what we're trying to be all about at the Globe, which is to say this is a living, vital force that has a lot to talk to us about in our contemporary world, has a lot of ways to help us understand what's going on in the universe and in, in life, and yes, even in our country. And so we want to approach Shakespeare in as many different ways as we can. And Romeo and Juliet closes out the program, and that will be on August 28th, and that will be outdoors. Again, that's another fitting one to have outside. So thank you very much for talking about Shakespeare films. I'm so excited that the film program is back again. And remind people of the Shakespeare plays that are going to be performed live here on stage. Richard II opened this weekend to great acclaim, I'm happy to say, and continues for another couple of weeks uh, in, the, in our outdoor theater. And then next up is Hamlet, which will go from the middle of August to the end of September. All right. Well, thank you very much. Thank you. Good to see you. That was Old Globe Artistic Director Barry Edelstein. The Globe Summer Shakespeare Film Series starts June 26th and screens four films during the next three months. Thanks for listening to another edition of listener-supported KPBS Cinema Junkie podcast. Till our next film fix, I'm Beth Accomando, your resident cinema junkie.